Well, we know what it's like to feel worried and helpless about the state of our world. But we're finding comfort and inspiration from people tackling winner-take-all economics and other root causes of climate change, inequity, and global unrest. Join us on the road from wasteland to wonderland. This is Part of Gold. On this episode, we are speaking with Declan Kennedy, an architect, urban planner, mediator, permaculture designer, and poet. Declan is one of the founders of the Eco-Village Movement, which has now taken root in communities all over the world. The movement seeks to inspire communities to come together and solve problems in a holistic manner through participatory planning. We got a glimpse already of this kind of community-driven activism in our episode about the Transition Network with Ben and Ines. So I'm excited to hear another approach. Let's welcome Declan. We're here today with Declan Kennedy, and he's an agricultural specialist um, and a founder of the Eco-Village Movement. Uh, a lot about sustainability, greening the world, and we're here to ask him what is an eco-village and what um, what he sees for the future. So let's hear from you, Declan. Well, uh, it's very simple. It's an eco-village is an intentional community, uh, usually founded by a group, which decides to do everything possible in an ecological way in a way that fits in with nature as it originally was. So we look at nature a lot, and we not only eat organic food, but we also make sure that our housing is organic, that our mobility is organic. And it's first when we started this whole movement about 35 years ago, <clears throat> then it seemed impossible. But we're doing it now, and we have something like uh, more than 10,000 eco-villages now in the world in more than 100 countries. And some of them are intentional communities, and some of them are villages that were ecological anyway, like some of the Senegal villages. They just then made the decision, we're going to keep it this way. So, and the thing is, there's nobody deciding you are an eco-village or you are not. You do that yourself with a thing that's on the ecovillage.org website, which is called the Community Self-Assessment. Could you give an example on how an eco-village might differ from, for example, our block here on, in New York City? Yeah, right Oh, Well, let's start with the word eco and the ecology. That's very, uh, as I mentioned already, it's not only trying to do organic food and doing it yourself and doing as much as possible. You won't get there 100% but you'll be able to do quite a lot because, I mean, you can even do wheat as a vegetable and not necessarily as a huge big field. And, um, okay, so you can, you can use corners, roofs, balconies. Um, you can actually change parks 
by instead of having just ornamental trees, also having trees of fruit. And people say, oh, and then how do we do it in harvesting the fruit? Because that's belonged to us. But no, you then go into the economics of things and we have to reinvent the idea of ownership also. Because in point of fact, the earth, the air, the sun, the rain has brought those plums onto that tree. So it belongs to everybody. And everybody can, can um, then take them. So, okay, it says first come, first serve. But if you've, if you've got enough beautiful plum trees, they do a beautiful job in the spring of flowering, just as nice as, as an ornamental tree, etc., etc. Okay, now we've got from the ecologic to a part of the economics. The economics is economics of sharing. And, um, the economics is also connected up with the worldview. If you are ready to change your me-first paradigm to we-first. You've seen this movement over 35 years really develop. And I wonder what it feels like to see a, a, a town move. I don't, I don't know if you have seen a town move from a kind of a traditional market-driven space or community to an eco-village community? And that's my first question. And the second one is, over that time, what do you see as the, as the biggest challenge that consi consistently shows up when a community says, declares, we want to be an eco-village, let's make it happen? So let me hear what, what that feels like for you. Well, there are two beautiful examples over the last... Uh, 15 years. One is in Great Britain. They've started a movement called Incredible Edible. And it was two women. And they began to use the spaces that were left over, like, uh, like a traffic triangle, or um, a piece that was left over because of a bridge. And they would put in either bury bushes if they didn't want it too high, or they put in some sort of a fruit tree. And they then went to the city council. And the city council, because the older woman was so good at, she was so charismatic, and she was able to get her point over very quickly, she got over that they would not take them away, that they would allow it and see how it would happen. We wanted to share some stats about the social impact of eco-villages. These are all from the Global Eco-Village Network, so you can easily check them out yourself and on our website, potofgold.world. In 2017, there was a study of 30 eco-villages across five continents to see how eco-villages contribute to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and Climate Agreements. So we'll name some of those sustainable development goals, and then share what eco-villages are doing to make a difference in those areas. Quality education. 100% of the eco-villages provide education and lifelong learning opportunities. Yoo-hoo! 
Sustainable cities and communities, 100% of eco-villages protect local cultural traditions and use sustainable ways of building an agriculture. Gender equality. 90% of the studied eco-villages had over 40% women in decision-making bodies. Responsible consumption and production. 90% of the villages recycle and reuse more than half of consumer goods. 85% of villages compost all food waste. And in terms of clean water and sanitation, climate action, and life on land, 97% of the studied eco-villages work actively to restore degraded ecosystems. 90% work actively to sequester carbon in soil and biomass. And 97%, again, actively work to restore, replenish sources and cycles of water. Well, so much of this amazing work reminded us of what we heard in our episode about transition towns with Ben and Enos. So we wanted to ask Declan how these two movements work together. Does the eco-village movement um, relate in any way to the transition town movement? Yes, and it's um, running parallel and it's cooperating with each other. And as you see, in, in Europe, we see the beginnings of the transition town movement is Totnes and um, being organized by a guy called Rob Hopkins. He was a permaculture designer already in the 80s. And um, the permaculture came to Europe through me and Margaret in 1981. And the, I mean, the, the difference is in point of fact that you're seeing the every element in front of you that you are working with in a planning or a design way as supporting and a possible support for other elements rather than in competition. So, uh, uh, and this is behind the Transition Town Movement, but what I love about the Transition Town Movement is that it comes from the people. It's really the people of that town identifying what they would love to have and from that uh, going and designing the most beautiful town and or at least getting a vision of it. And then they go to the politics, politicians and they go to the administration and they, and they just begin pushing, slowly pushing, and in a very nice, non-violent way. And, um, you see, even when, when Rob Hopkins would at first go around Britain, uh, he only went to Britain and Holland because he would only use public transportation. He would not use, and still doesn't use, the, the aeroplane. But Rob would always bring a couple of the housewives or the street workers who were in the Transition Town movement to the, his lecture and they would give it together. And he would bring often his son, who was at 11 year old, had already started working with other children to improve their own immediate environment. So it's a real participatory thing. The eco-village uh, is more going from the ecological, whereas it's the transition town is going ecological as well, but it's going from 
the place where the people are. So you sort of start where, or they start where they are, and they build on that. And very quickly, people begin to see, well, why are we doing this? You know, why are we uh, using poison to uh, clean the streets? You know, and, uh, this poisoning us, and you know, this sort of thing. And and uh, and it's all done in discussion groups, and it's all done uh, in action. Quite a lot of action. You mentioned, kind of, in the transition movement, that the that the citizens create a vision together, and then they kind of gently nudge the political authorities yeah. you know, to achieve that. And I, 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 it's interesting to me the intersection between politics and our ability to move forward with this. Uh, I know in the city here in New York, the simple uh, movement of, for example, reserving one parking space or converting one's parking space into a, a garden meets tremendous opposition from the community itself because they want the parking space. And um, there was always this tension between people who want something for their personal use versus people who want something for communal use. So I'm wondering if you've how much you've run into that 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 tension over the years, and and really what kind of political skills like how much do politics kind of get in the way of of becoming an effective movement? Well, um, let's go from the parking space because that's a thing all over the world, and of course the eco village answer to that and transition town also, is car sharing. We all have a car at the moment. Almost all of us. Almost every single person in the Western world has a car. And they just take it for granted that there must be a space for that car to be parked. We're using it maybe only 10% of the time, if not less. And it's sitting there, taking up space, and often dripping out oil, and really a big problem. And the problem, the solution is just to organize a car sharing. And so at one time, in my eco-village, we had, as at that time we had 100 members, and we had 17 cars. So then we found out that we were polluting also our own ground because most of our cars were old wrecks. <laughs> and they just kept going, which we thought was very good, you know, recycling and all that sort of thing. No, we've moved now to 100% electric. We've got the photovoltaics going and we usually got the photovoltaics donated to us by just asking. And then, of course, the German government had a, in the middle of the 90s and up to about 2005, they had a, a really good um, decentralized electric power production system. And we got in on that and we would get up to sort of 30% of the costs back. 
and then we got a really good price for the electricity that we put into the grid. So you can get things going together. And, and now at the moment, we have about, we have switched back. We've got now 20 cars, but we've got seven of them are 100% electric. And it's very easy with the apps in the cell phone now to organize that. How do you think living in an eco-village changes someone's personal experience of life? Well, let's, let's go just one step further because the, the other thing that happens in eco-village is that because you're celebrating and transition town, because you're celebrating each step, you're also getting to know each other. And the celebration is wonderful for pulling down wrong concepts of the other guy. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden, Daniel or whoever, he, who was really sort of a bit of a messy guy that you didn't like, becomes somebody that you can even start to love. Where do you see us going 20 years from now, let's say 2040, what's your hope? Well, my hope would be that um, this becomes the usual way of living and that in point of fact, um, that we would be have active systems of preventing Uh, the poisonous direction. You know, all these different diseases that we're having, you know, are, and all these new flus and everything, they can take, take uh, shape very quickly because of the fact that we're, through the poison, we're pulling down the immune system. And so everybody is sort of going on uh, first gear rather than on fifth Yeah. <laughs> Understood. That's a beautiful vision. Declan, thank you so much for your time today. We all see a beautiful future ahead of us if we can join the eco-village movement, and we appreciate what you've done for the world. Thank you. Thank you, Declan. Bye-bye. I think it's really cool that De Declan has dedicated basically his entire life to creating a new way of life that's more sustainable and even more resilient. Like, I imagine that living in an eco-village during a lockdown would be so much easier because you're growing your own food and you have neighbors that you already rely on. It just seems more natural, even in the case of an emergency like we're living in today. Well, Declan gave up his career, his conventional career as a professor. He quit university in actually in, in order to do this permaculture project and to live in the eco-village they established. Um, and as we've just spoken with two people who also live in eco-villages around the world, um, very much appreciating where they currently are in the lockdown, that they are so grateful of actually being in their eco-village. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, so it so it's really proves out that doing the right thing in terms of the earth is actually doing the right thing in terms of human beings as well. You know, to live harmoniously with the earth, with each other is good for everybody and not just, you know, 
the the earth but the our survival as a human species actually too i think one of the the main focuses in the, in this lockdown is coming to food and not just having enough food but also the quality of food mm-hmm. and that also became very clear in our conversation with uh, those two people who currently live in eco villages is the the love and the care for the food and they increased their gardens becoming conscious of that they absolutely have to guarantee their own food production and what else could there you know what, what what else could be better than actually having your own food in the garden yeah that's real wealth uh, we were speaking recently here in new york to some residents in the public housing developments and their biggest challenge really is fresh food they cannot get enough fresh food to feed all of the people and they're living on canned food and processed food mm. and it's having a drastic impact on their health and their immune systems and you know as as is widely reported in the world low income communities are really hit the hardest with this the economic impacts of the coronavirus and they're actually hit the hardest all the time not just during the time of crisis that we're in and so these little measures to grow good food to cultivate the land to create community that supports each other really profoundly make the difference when it comes to tough times like we're in right now don't you think <laughs> <laughs> i am melting away <laughs> <laughs> I need air. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie's in a in a in a sound tent made of a down blanket. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> stick with me. Just, stay with me. Like stay with me. I'm in this big mask, basically <laughs> suffering, not having enough oxygen. <laughs> well, you grow your own food. How's that for you? Sixteen square meters is enough for a person to survive. How no, actually, not just a person. It's apparently enough for a family to survive. It's not enough for me, so I'm not quite sure how, how you need to increase it so you can make it for a family. But 16 square meters, four by four, is enough food for a family of two with two kids to survive. Um, so that's basically two or three squares of sidewalk that could feed a person or a family. For well, it, it all depends on the quality of the earth, obviously. Right. If, right. I mean, if you have 16 square meters of um, not high quality earth, and this is another thing I actually learned personally from Declan, is how to produce um, terra preta, which is the black earth. It's a, it's an earth um, which is, I don't know how long humans have cultivated it already. They've recently discovered it that the, in the Amazonas they've been doing this, you know, for. Um, a really long time. I don't. I can't pin it down to the to the ages, um, but it's been proven that this is a very very f- f- fertile uh, soil. And it's. I tested it myself, and it's absolutely amazing. If you only put a little bit um, of this very dark looking earth into, even like mix it up with a normal normal stuff with a normal earth, uh, for example, on my tomato plant, and it's just amazing what a difference it could do for a plant. So. The quality of earth is obviously then reflecting the quality of the plant, reflecting the quality of the food, reflecting the quality of what you just said, of the health of Mm -hmm. people. The cycle of life. 
That's amazing. Um, it's very clear that we can, we can, if we have the intention to create a much more sustainable and resilient society. And it's not that hard. People like Declan have led the way for us and we have lessons to learn. Declan has also recently published a biography about him, his life and his permaculture, mainly permaculture work. And I, I think you can say that permaculture and eco-villages are on, let's say, his, it's a hard project. Declan wrote a book. I think the poetry book is called The Loving Universe. And it seems like that's really his life work is creating a loving universe for everyone. And his biography is called A Life Shaped by Permaculture. A loving universe and a life shaped by permaculture basically means the same thing. <laughs> that's lovely. <laughs> so we're going to give all the links uh, on the uh, episode's uh, notes um, for people who want to maybe want to buy the book. So it's all available on the website. Please keep in mind that these recordings may not be as high quality as they usually are because we're doing them in a time of social distancing. But thank you to Zoom for allowing us to continue making this podcast. We're an independent, listener-supported podcast. Thanks to our producer, Riley Paul. Support us by rating this episode and sharing with all your friends. And to learn more, join us at potofgold.world. I'm Stephanie Overbach. And I'm Mel Wymore. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.